Welcome to Queer by Candlelight, hosted by Elizabeth Crane and Dahlia Kumar. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Crane, and today I am singing Bauhaus in the most dramatic and goth way possible. And I'm Dahlia Kumar, and oops, I accidentally spilt a little bit of red wine on my shirt. Guess I have to take it off now. Today we'll be discussing the 1983 film The Hunger. We will be discussing the entire plot of this movie, so beware of spoilers. Also, we just wanted to apologize for fully not having recorded an episode in like a month. Um, you know, to be honest, being a queer young person in Nashville right now has been very extra bad, mm-hmm. and. I have not been doing great. Also, trying to get into grad school, which I did, Yay! but it was a little scary. <laughs> so I just, I need a little bit of a break for mental health reasons. And now we are back and it's going so well, okay? Mm-hmm. We're ignoring other things and we're watching these dumb lesbian vampires <laughs> because they are iconic. So iconic. So the film The Hunger is directed by Tony Scott with a screenplay by Ivan Davis and Michael Thomas. It's also based off of a 1981 novel by Whitley Stryber, who I have never heard of before, and I read a lot of vampire novels, so I do find that interesting. Um, It's also worth noting that this film um, stars Catherine Deneuve, uh, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon um, as its main protagonist, which is pretty fun and fresh. Yeah, David Bowie and Susan Sarandon are definitely, like, gay icons. 100%. And, you know, Catherine Deneuve seems cool. Don't know who she is, but... She's cool. She's cool. She did a great job. Yep. <laughs> so the film opens with the lead singer of Bauhaus, Peter Murphy, way over dramatically singing the hit Bauhaus song, Bella Lugosi's Dead, at a goth nightclub. It is truly iconic. I'm obsessed. Um, you know, as someone who is not goth, but perhaps... Uh, goth adjacent. Goth adjacent. Yeah. Um, I, I'm so obsessed. I have many thoughts about this scene. Um, so then, our main characters, Miriam and John Blaylock, arrive at the club, and they're both wearing sunglasses indoors at night. Obviously. They're just so cool. And mysterious. Oh, they're so mysterious. They're not like other people. <laughs> because they're not people. Actually, I would argue that at this club, what we're shown of it... They're like everyone else there. They're like everyone else yeah. there. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um... The Blaylocks follow a man and a woman back to their home, presumably under the pretext of wanting to hook up, and then they split into two different rooms. So John's with the woman and Miriam's with the man, and both of them begin undressing their respective partners and making out with them. We also see that the scene is intercut with footage of two monkeys fighting each other. Then the Baylocks both pull Ankh necklaces that they both wear off, revealing that the necklaces actually contain tiny knives and stab both the random woman and man. The next morning, we see the introduction of our third protagonist, Dr. Sarah Roberts, as she arrives at her job at a research lab to find that one of her lab monkeys has killed the other, and the researchers are all saying that they don't really know why this happened. The scene cuts to John burning the bodies of the two people the Blaylocks killed, and then John and Miriam shower together, reaffirming that they will be together forever. They then go to sleep, but John's having trouble sleeping, and has a flashback to meeting Miriam at what appears to be Versailles, where he was a cellist playing in the court of a French aristocrat. At her job, Tom brings Sarah lunch and kisses her on the cheek but she's distracted by the unusual behavior of the monkey she's studying. She says that the monkey who killed the other hasn't slept in 50 hours. Me during final season? Actually. (laughs) (laughs) 
like, how many coffees has this monkey had? Because I think I can avoid killing my friends yeah. if I had like a couple cups of coffee. It's giving what's that creepy pasta? According to Wikipedia, the Russian sleep experiment is a creepy pasta which tells the tale of five test subjects being exposed to experimental sleep inhabiting stimulants in a Soviet era scientific experiment. Um, and then in this basically during the first five days they're fine but then after nine days they start going like insane so one subject begins screaming uncontrollably and the others doesn't react um Wait, I read a- it's it's like an urban legend now. yeah i read a short story about this um it was from like the 50s though it was in a collection of like 1950s short stories Ooh. Really? Yeah. Maybe it's like based off of it. Probably. Yeah. I don't know. Like the creepy pasta. <laughs> right. Like right. Yeah. I'm not saying that. Because this is internet legend. Story <laughs> based off of a creepy pasta. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like in the end, um, the four surviving subjects like have mutilation and they like have disemboweled themselves and basically like really really fucked up each other oh good yeah good that's not what happened in the short story the guy just divorced his wife oh okay (laughs) no in this they they like you know when you don't sleep for like several weeks and it leads to a divorce yeah that common thing you know normal normal happens um but yeah and then they all like die in the end (laughs) after like a lot of violence love creepypasta i read a lot of it as a kid was that healthy? I don't know. Who can say? Yeah. But now we're both claiming to be goth adjacent <laughs> and run a horror movie podcast. So it can't have gone that badly, right? No, <laughs> no. Do some of them still haunt me to this day? Maybe. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> hey, it's a good thing. Yeah. Anyway, good tangent. <laughs> Back to the thing where we're we were talking about the unusual behavior of monkeys after they weren't sleeping. Um, We see that this scene is also cut with footage of John being unable to sleep. And Sarah says that she's surprised that the monkey killed the other because she thought that the monkeys loved each other. John, while dramatically staring out the window, being (laughs) unable to sleep like the horror movie brooding man he is, has a flashback to meeting Miriam in France. They had a rendezvous in the stables, and Miriam told him that they could be together forever. I'm sure this won't come back to haunt them. Surely, no. No way. Sarah is being interviewed on TV about her studies on aging and a book she's about to publish, and Miriam watches her interview. John walks into the room and also sees the end of the interview on the TV. Then Alice, the Blaylock's young neighbor, arrives. She takes a picture of John and then Miriam on her new Polaroid camera. They all then practice a piano trio that they play together, with Alice being a violinist while John plays the cello and Miriam the piano. John stops playing in the middle of rehearsal and walks out. Alice asks Miriam what's wrong, and Miriam says he's having trouble sleeping, so Alice offers sleeping pills she stole from her stepmother, which Miriam scolds her for. John stares at himself in the mirror and sees wrinkles starting to form around his eyes. Later, Miriam attends Sarah's book signing and tells her that she wants to talk to her, but is interrupted and walks away before she's able to give any details. Miriam also goes to Sarah's work and talks to Dr. Humphreys, which is one of the other researchers working with Sarah, and asks if there's any connection between blood type and aging. John continues to have trouble sleeping, and he tells Miriam that his hair is starting to fall out. He's also reading Sarah's book. But Miriam says that Sarah's lab has found nothing. John asks Miriam about how long it took for Miriam's previous lovers to age after the process began. But she says she can't remember, probably a few days. Miriam says that this always happens, but she had hoped that this time would be different. John then asks who her next lover will be, but she refuses to answer. Miriam then has a brief flashback to a man screaming her name in ancient Egypt, just like John is in the present. The next day, John also goes to Sarah's lab. John tries to talk to Sarah, asking her about how her book states that aging is a disease that can be cured and whether she really believes that, which she says she does. He insists that yesterday he looked 30, but she confirms that he does look much older than 30 now. However, she thinks that he's making things up and brushes him off, 
saying she has a meeting to go to and leaving him in a waiting room. Sarah then tells Fred that some crazy guy was trying to talk to her and that she wants him gone. A montage shows John sitting in the waiting room all day, even though Sarah said she'd be back in 15 minutes. He gets visibly older throughout the scene. Back in her lab, Sarah is studying a video of a monkey aging at a rate 5 years per minute, which is interspersed with footage of John also rapidly aging. Eventually, the monkey dies from old age and the body begins to decompose until it is just a skeleton. The whole day has passed and John now looks like a very old man. Sarah is telling Tom that they need to show other scientists the tape they'd been studying to get funding, and Tom eventually agrees to it. John goes to the bathroom and stares at a young shirtless man and begins to grab his knife onk necklace thing to kill him, but another guy comes into the bathroom and interrupts him. Then on the elevator, John again wants to kill a nurse, but cannot because there are too many people. John runs back into Sarah, and Sarah is shocked to see how quickly he has aged. Sarah tries to get him to come to her office, but he says he can't afford to spend any more time there and leaves. I feel so bad for him in the scene, honestly. Yeah, because he has no control over what's happening to him. No. He did, like, nothing to cause it. Literally. Like, it's literally just something, like, terrible that's happening yeah. to him. And so fast, too. On the way back home, a taxi almost runs over John, and the driver calls him an old man. We then see a roller skater dancing to music in an empty parking garage, and John sneaks up with him and stabs him with the Ankh necklace, but then he runs away without killing him. Alice rings the doorbell at the Blaylock home, but no one's answering. Eventually, John comes on over the intercom, and Alice asks for Miriam, saying she needs to tell Miriam that she's canceling her violin lesson the next day due to an event in school. John says no one's home, so Alice asks if she can leave a note, and John agrees to let her in. Alice asks who John is, questioning whether he's John's father because they have the same eyes, but John says that he's just a friend. Alice leaves her note in the hands in a Greek-style marble statue and then takes a Polaroid of it. John asks Alice to play something for him, and under John's questioning, Alice says that Miriam is her best friend, but she sometimes finds John off-putting, although she says she loves both of them. Alice begins playing her piece, and then John stabs her with the Ankh necklace, killing her. A Polaroid photo is taken as the two struggle. The camera then zooms in on the blood seeping through the sheet music. R.I.P. Alice. R.I.P. You were a good character. I liked her. Miriam arrives home later, and John has apparently cleaned up the murder scene, but is now so old that he can barely move. John is upset that Miriam said they would be together forever, but he's now dying. John asks for a kiss and for her to think of him like he used to be. Miriam hesitantly kisses him, and it's intercut with them kissing in the French stables when they first met. Miriam starts sobbing and says that she can't do it. John asks her to kill him, but she says she cannot, leaving it a bit unclear as to whether she can't or won't. She picks up the Polaroid taken when John killed Alice, which John apparently missed in the cleanup. Miriam quickly realizes what has happened. Miriam checks the furnace where John has burned Alice, and John again asks Miriam to kill him. John begins to walk down the stairs towards her but falls and is unable to get back up. Miriam tells him that he cannot die as he's immortal and that he will never be able to rest. Miriam says that they die a different way than humans and that their death will never be final as they will always be conscious and be able to see and feel. She carries him to the elevator and then up several flights of stairs to the top of her building where she has a storage room full of coffins of her previous lovers. And it also has a confusingly large number, number of pigeons and gauzy curtains to add to the ambiance. No, literally. Like, are they indoors or outdoors? Because no, there literally. should not be that many pigeons indoors. How do they come in? They just, like, sneak in through the vent system. <laughs> <laughs> the pigeons are infiltrating the coffin room. <laughs> Quick. Also, how did, jo like, because they were in Versailles before. How did John just not notice her transport this large amount of coffins? <laughs> what did he think was in the coffins? And also, like, upstairs in the attic. Like, did he never go up there? I don't know. Was it, like, off limits? He was like, okay. Like, what? <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> 
Miriam then also puts John into a coffin and then tacks it next to some others, telling her previous lovers to look out for John and take care of him. Then the doorbell rings and it's Sarah saying that she came to visit after Miriam didn't pick up the phone. Sarah explains that John had visited her at the hospital and that she's hoping to follow up with him to make up for her brushing him off. But Miriam claims he has gone on a trip to Switzerland. You know. As they do. Not suspicious. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Me when I kill my husband. Oh, uh-huh. he's in Switzerland. Switzerland. You know. It's yeah. a very relaxing place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's for his no, health. It's, he's gone to a better place. It's just Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when it parents, is a better place. Yeah, it's like when parents tell their kids, like, "Oh, your dog went to a farm and he's happy." But it's oh, the farm is Switzerland. <laughs> the farm is Switzerland. Miriam says she could maybe pass on a message after they get to know each other better. You know, mm-hmm. get you to do. know each other better. Anyway, um, (laughs) Sarah gives Miriam her number and tells her to call her back at a better time. You know, gives her her number for straight person reasons. (laughs) As you do. Just then, a police detective named Lieutenant Allegreza arrives and asks Miriam about Alice's disappearance. He says that he's not worried about the case, but says Miriam should call if she thinks of anything suspicious. On her way walking home, Sarah's almost run over by a, a semi, but it stops inches away from her. The inner cutting of the scene implies that Miriam telepathically causes the truck to stop, but it's unclear. It's giving... It's giving Edward Cullen running in front of the... No, it's not. It's not. It's not giving that. Take it back right now. I'll take it back. That scene was cringy. This scene was artistic, okay? (laughs) It has artistic merit. You can make the argument that glittering vampires... No. ...are just artistic. (laughs) They're not. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. It's not artistic. No. I refuse to admit that anything with that dialogue... Have you... Have you seen the I haven't I haven't watched it in years. The line about like and then the lion fell in love with the lamb. What? It is the worst written line I have ever heard in my entire life. That's I so had funny. to hear it with my own two ears. Honestly, I think I would rewatch Twilight now, but I would approach it like a comedy. Yeah, well that's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. I a played a Dungeons and Dragons game with my friends yeah. about it, and to prepare, I watched it while drunk, <laughs> and it was silly. It's silly. It's you name my daughter after the Loch Ness monster. monster? <laughs> Bella, where have you been, Loka? Anyway, that does not have artistic merit, and this does, and there are lesbians. (laughs) That's true. Edward couldn't telepathically do it. He had to push it off with his hand like a fool. No, literally. Later at her house, Sarah's very excited when she gets a phone call because she thinks it's Miriam. Okay. Yep. Um, when Sarah gets out of the shower, she sees Miriam in the vanity mirror, but she's not there when she turns around. Also kind of gay. Okay, yeah. You know when you think you see a hot woman and then you're like, oh, maybe I'm just like obsessed with her. Yeah. You know, normal things. (laughs) This is some, totally something a straight person would do. (laughs) That night, Miriam sadly plays the piano while wearing a delightfully dramatic morning veil. And Sarah starts crying in her sleep, although she's confused by it when she wakes up. Crying in your sleep's normal. Really? I don't think I cry <laughs> in my sleep. I, I guess not to I the extent. Before I sleep. Yeah, no, that's, that's normal. But what happens in the movie is she's like fully asleep, and oh, then she opens like her sorry. eye, and she's like, "Why is there a full like mascara and <laughs> tear track down my face?" That's true. The next day, Sarah's back at her job at the research lab. She thinks she receives a call, but no one is there, and her coworker tells her it didn't even ring. Okay. <laughs> then Sarah goes back to Miriam's house, saying that she wants an update on John before admitting she doesn't really have a reason but wanted to come. Gay. Mm-hmm. We've reached critical levels of gayness so that the movie can now actually become gay. <laughs> we did it, guys. Yeah. Miriam invites her in and offers her a glass of sherry. 
This will be relevant later. <laughs> she says she doesn't like Sherry, but Miriam says that she will like this one. Sarah comments on an art piece, and Miriam says it's 2,000 years old. Sarah says a marble bust of a woman looks like Miriam, and Miriam says that it's from Florence and is 500 years old, so it couldn't possibly be her. No. No way. <laughs> Miriam starts playing the piano while Sarah sits Sherry. Sarah asks if Miriam is lonely now that John is away, but she says she isn't. Sarah compliments Miriam's Ankh necklace, and Miriam says it's the Egyptian symbol of everlasting life. Sarah asks what piece Miriam's playing, and she said it is called Lachme by Delib. I believe that is also French. I don't know how to pronounce it. We're going to go with Delib. That (laughs) sounds right. (laughs) And it's about an Indian princess and her female slave going on a magical adventure. Sarah asks if the two fell in love, and Miriam says that they are two women, but Sarah insists it sounds like a love song. Sarah asks if Miriam is flirting with her, and Miriam says she isn't. That's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Then Sarah spills some of the sherry onto her white t-shirt, and it looks like blood. Wow. Suspiciously. (laughs) Because I'm pretty sure sherry is, like, brown, or at least not thick in consistency. No, it was thick. It, it was, was weird. thick. It was like a syrup. Almost. Because it's blood. She was like, oh, this is kind of metallic. But that's fine. It's fine. I like it. <laughs> Sarah tries to clean the blood off of her shirt, but she ends up just taking her shirt off um, while Miriam stares at her intently. And then the two of them kiss. I just think it's so funny because it wasn't even like, oh, like, I'll take it off. She just takes it off. She no comment. She just takes it off. She does she not. She even tried to clean it off. She was like, oh, okay. Ooh, okay, I guess <laughs> I have to take it off now. I'm also conveniently not wearing a bra because obviously I had this planned. Yeah, honestly. Like, come on, girl. He's so for real right Maybe. now. The scene then cuts to them in Miriam's bedroom and they have sex. Maybe? Or just roll around naked with lots of gauzy curtains? Really, who can say at this point? Um, It is some variation of artistic and we just wanted to shoot naked women. Um, You decide. But there is an implication that they had sex. Miriam then drinks Sarah's blood and Sarah drinks Miriam's blood. Later, Sarah is on a dinner date with Tom. Who, if you don't remember, is her... (laughs) Boyfriend, Boyfriend, yeah. yeah. Uh, I I hate him a lot. I have a lot of feelings about him, and they are (laughs) negative. (laughs) That's valid. He kind of sucked. Yeah. As a boyfriend. Yeah. He's so mean. The whole movie. Yeah. It's like, come on, dog. Be fucking for real. (laughs) Tom comments on Sarah not eating anything and ordering her steak rare. Tom asks her where she got her new necklace from, and which is one of the Ankh slash hidden knife pendants. And Sarah says that Miriam gave it to her. Tom questions why Miriam would give Sarah the necklace. And Sarah says it's because she's European. <laughs> <laughs> Me when I'm European. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, that is the best euphemism for being gay on the face yeah. of the planet. Have oh, you seen Legally me. Blonde, the musical? I haven't seen the musical, no. There's this song called Gay or European. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. She does anything slightly queer, and you're like, oh, she's just European. She's European. You know. <laughs> me at the gay bar. Maybe I'm European. Yeah, I don't know. Guys. You can't prove anything about me. Guys, I have some. I have something to tell you. I'm coming out as European. <laughs> it's taken a lot in me to say this. <laughs> so sorry, I couldn't be American. I'm European. Tom says that something's wrong with her. I hate him. Is that, is that homophobic? Yes. <laughs> and questions why she was at Miriam's place for three hours. Because, because Miriam lasts more than 11 seconds. <laughs> Because lesbian sex is just better. Yeah. Sarah says that they were just talking, but Tom doesn't believe her, leading to an argument. The scene is also randomly intercut with women swimming because they're at a restaurant that looks over a pool, perhaps. I need answers. Someone explain the concept of a restaurant 
that has giant panel windows that look out over a pool? Yeah, and they're just women swimming. Yeah. What pool? What restaurant? Yeah, because it's not even like a resort or something. No, it's just a restaurant. And there's just a pool. I guess I never thought about that that deeply, but you're right. It's just for the vibe. Yeah. They're like, Sarah's like staring out at the woman. She's gay. (laughs) Yeah. I refuse. Okay, you could argue Sarah is bi, right? Because she has a boyfriend. I refuse to admit that she likes him in any way. I don't think she likes Tom at all. No. No. Miriam Miriam is bi. Sarah is a lesbian. Yeah. Tom is an asshole. And she's been manipulated by society into thinking she needs a boyfriend. Oh, 100%. Especially for that time. Like, yeah. It's the 80s. Sense. She's like, I need a beard. And she chose Tom. For some reason. Choice, but she chose Tom. She never shows any interest in him. No, this entire movie. You, like, forget he exists, honestly. Until, As you like, should. This scene. And you're like, Tom? Him? <laughs> What's he doing here? Were you not just in bed with Miriam? This is a better option. She's a hot vampire woman. Ditch the random dude. I also think that it's, like, really interesting that Tom immediately thinks something happened between her and Miriam. (laughs) Yeah. Why would he he know that? He He knows. knows. If she was totally straight, he wouldn't even have an inkling. He would be like, oh, they're just, like, you know gossiping about whatever they're gossiping they yeah, have like know, a little girl, girl woman night things. out or whatever yeah but he's immediately like why were you there three yeah. hours why like, did she give you, you a necklace talking i don't believe you you were having sex with her weren't you yeah yeah because she was yeah go her yeah <laughs> she's usually, living the life i wish i had usually i'm not for cheating but here <laughs> Suddenly, I become morally okay with it. Yeah, suddenly. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it's almost like Tom is the worst character I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> this man is gaslighting, gatekeeping, and not girl bossing. No. No, not girl bossing. Not even man bossing. Sorry, That's not a thing. Bossing. <laughs> <laughs> After that, Tom says that Sarah needs to go see a doctor. Shut up, Tom. She's fine. Yeah. Let her become a vampire. It's okay. Just mansplaining her health to her. Like, damn. Do you have a PhD, Tom? I don't think so. Actually, he might. He might. I don't know where he works. He works at the same place as her. Oh, okay. Which is like a lab hospital. Yeah, and Dr. Humphreys is a doctor, and he works there too. (sighs) Okay, fine, Tom. (laughs) I'll give you this one. (laughs) But still, he's mansplaining. Oh, for sure. That night, Sarah is coughing heavily, and she is, like, throwing up over the toilet. At work the next day, Tom asks Dr. Humphreys what is wrong with Sarah, and Dr. Humphreys says that a test of her blood has revealed that there are two types of blood inside of her fighting each other. Don't know how that works. I will be not questioning it, though. Yeah, I'm not a STEM major. Actually, I am. (laughs) Don't lie to me like that. (laughs) I'm not a hard STEM major, so I don't know either. (laughs) And I'm a humanities major. Dr. Humphreys then says one of the types of blood isn't human. Whatever could it be? Tom screams angrily about this for a while. I don't really know. I kind of tuned it out. It doesn't make sense why he's screaming. Because, like, do you think, does he think, like, she purposely injected herself with non-human blood he does think that if you watch the movie that's exactly what he thinks true but it's also like why does his mind go there yeah he is so stupid for screaming at her yeah because why is his mind going there like it just doesn't make he has logical sense no he has like an inherent distrust of his girlfriend that is not healthy yeah then dr humphrey sees the stab wound on sarah's arm from where miriam drank her blood Sarah goes back to Miriam and angrily asks her what is happening. Miriam reassures her that there's nothing to worry about as long as she trusts her. Miriam tells Sarah that she has given her everlasting life, but Sarah assumes that she's lying. That is a normal reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah runs at Miriam and Miriam pushes her to the ground and says that they belong to each other now. 
Sarah leaves a bit. Miriam says that she will be back because she will be so hungry that she cannot avoid it. Sarah goes to a phone booth and calls Tom at work, but is told that he had gone home already. Sarah insists that he didn't pick up the home phone either, so he had to be at work. Sarah then sees Miriam watching her, but when she looks back, Miriam is gone. Kind of gay. Yeah. (laughs) Two guys waiting in line for the phone booth bother her to leave if she's done with her call, and they also assume that she's a junkie. Because she's, like, shivering at this point. Yeah. Well, it is it is clearly supposed to be, like, a metaphor for, like, drug addiction. Yeah. But also, that is not exactly what happened here. Mm-mm. Sarah does it return to Miriam's, and Miriam tells her that she will bring her a victim. She goes out and picks up a male hooker. Meanwhile, Tom tries to call the blood specialist Sarah allegedly went to when she actually went to go see Miriam the second time. Miriam arrives back at her home with a male hooker and goes to check on Sarah, who's lying in bed very ill and with a high fever. Miriam kisses Sarah and waits for the male hooker, who has taken the elevator and is looking for Miriam after being left alone for a while. He thinks he sees Miriam in in the mirror, but turns around and doesn't see anyone. As the elevator door opens, Miriam stabs the man and calls for Sarah. Sarah struggles to get out of bed as she hears her name, and looks down the stairs and sees Miriam standing over the bloody body with blood running down her mouth. Then, Tom arrives at Miriam's house looking for Sarah after she didn't come home that night, and after he heard from the blood specialist who said that Sarah never went to see him like she said she did. Miriam tells Tom that Sarah is sick upstairs. Tom finds Sarah shivering on the floor of the bedroom, and he puts her back on the bed and tries to figure out what's wrong. Sarah begins to ravenously kiss him, but then pushes him away, screaming for him to leave, presumably trying not to kill him. Tom refuses to leave and grabs onto Sarah as she struggles to get away from him, trying to comfort her. Sarah grabs her onk necklace as the scene shifts to Miriam looking out a window and remembering how she killed someone. Maybe the first person she killed? Because that would, like, thematically connect it or something? And they're in ancient Egypt. Because, you know, that was established earlier, I guess. <laughs> yep. I guess that makes sense with the Ankh. Yeah. That's the only connection I would see. We will discuss this later. I have thoughts. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> later, Miriam is playing the piano again when Sarah stumbles into the room with blood running down her mouth. Miriam asks if it wasn't as hard as she thought it would be, and Sarah agrees. Miriam tells her that she will need to sleep six hours a day and to kill someone and feed on them at least once a week. College students. (laughs) She also tells Sarah that she will be young forever because she's part of her. Miriam then reassures Sarah that Sarah will eventually love her even if she doesn't now. Sarah kisses Miriam but then stabs herself with Miriam's onk necklace, continuing to kiss Miriam as the two women struggle so that Miriam can't pull away to help the situation until it is too late. Sarah collapses to the ground and is very injured but not yet dead. She says that she can't do this and Miriam begins to sob. The scene cuts to Miriam carrying Sarah's body to the upstairs room where she keeps all the coffins of her past lovers. There's still too many pigeons for it to be indoors. (laughs) The room seems to shift and shake and Miriam sees all of her dead lovers, including John, rising from their coffins and coming towards Miriam through the unnecessarily large amount of gauzy curtains. Miriam tells them that she loves them all, but as they start to grab at her, she pushes them away and eventually flees. John grabs at her and kisses her, but she pushes him away and continues to flee. Her panicked rush away from John causes her to tumble over the balcony railing and down several flights of stairs. All the dead lovers watch over the balcony rail, seemingly in approval, as Miriam suddenly starts to rapidly age on the floor below. The dead lovers then return to the upper floor and collapse there, decomposing even further, and potentially actually dying? Unclear. Miriam is left in a state similar to the one her dead lovers were previously in. Later, Ali Greza returns and finds a real estate agent in the house, saying that it's for sale and that the owners had died. He says that all the profits from the sale will go to Sarah's lab. The lieutenant also finds the Polaroid that Alice took of Miriam. The scene then shifts to Sarah kissing some random woman in a room full of gauzy curtains and a grand piano. 
and then a coffin issued in some dark room with Miriam's voice calling out from it for Sarah. We hope this is more entertaining than the Wikipedia summary. Hi, this is Elizabeth Crane just chiming in to say please rate our podcast five stars and leave a written review if you have a spare second. This is the metric that a lot of podcast apps use to track which podcasts are being listened to a lot. So we would really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Welcome back to our analysis section of this podcast. This is going to be a wild one because this movie is just so much. <laughs> like, first of all, let's discuss the fact that there is no plot. Like, I know we just told you a plot, but that's just like the thin whispering of a plot. It's really just a bunch of aesthetic shots. It's yeah. an idea. People put money it's and just they a made a production. It's just of aesthetic shots of, like, things billowing in the wind and, like, blood dripping onto things. And they went, that's a movie, right? <laughs> and they're not wrong. But also, you can't convince me this movie has a plot because it doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. But it's fun. It's fun. I love the aesthetic. I love I it. like watching movies for the aesthetic. Me too. I mean, I think you can tell from the selection of movies we <laughs> that we have podcast, chosen. Yeah, but I love movies that commit one hundred percent to the aesthetic. Yeah, and this movie certainly does. Oh, hundred percent. Um, an attic with a bunch of pigeons and curtains for no reason. Mm -hmm. Like it, like it would make sense if it was like a castle or something. But, but it, it's, it, it kind of is. It's it kind of is. Mansion, yeah, but it's also supposed to be New York. Which we need to talk about, right? <laughs> they are supposed to live in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, and they own this massive mansion. No, literally. I don't think those exist in New York. No. Like, it would be more believable if it was, like, a penthouse. You know? Oh, yeah. Like, they can be really rich and have, like, this giant living space. Yeah. But it would be a penthouse apartment. Yeah. Not, like, a gothic-style mansion. Yeah. Or was it a mansion mansion? I don't know. I can't remember. I couldn't tell. It's it's a very large house yeah. with, like, multiple stories. stories. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know... Mm -hmm. that's just a little silly it's also very like 80s like all the style of the movie which the costuming is so good especially for miriam like all of her outfits i'm like i wish i looked like that every day yeah she slays she slays like the costumes are gorgeous but they're so 80s too they're very 80s. I think. I mean, the whole film feels very 80s. Even, like, I think you can especially feel it at the beginning sequence. Oh, the goth you know, nightclub? The goth nightclub. I love the, the goth outfits, nightclub. Everything. It, was, it was fun. It was a lot, the first scene, because, you, like, you don't know what you're expecting, and then it's just someone gyrating, <laughs> and you're like, whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Speaking of some guy gyrating, that guy is, in fact, Peter Murphy. The lead singer of Bauhaus. Um, it is actually him. It's That's not just so cool. someone lip syncing to his music. Mm -hmm. And it's iconic because the song Bella Lugosi's Dead that they use in this movie is often credited with the creation of the goth movement as a whole. Like, people love to trace the entire goth subculture back to Bauhaus and to specifically the song. So it's so fun to see it in a movie and mm -hmm. to see them like vibing to it as vampires yeah. at a goth nightclub it just feels so full circle almost yeah yeah also speaking of random cameos in this movie um one of the dudes at the phone booth that yell at sarah for being a junkie is fully willem defoe that's actually insane he has one line <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, he did great at that one line. Oh, Amazing. Because he's Willem Dafoe. Yeah. That's crazy. Apparently, it was basically a favor to the director because, like, the director was a big fan of Willem oh. Dafoe or something. I don't know. I'm not quite sure. That's simply that. what I read on the internet. But, like, <laughs> that's why he has exactly one line and he bothered to show up on set. Yeah. That's so sweet. We love Willem Dafoe here. 
To be honest, I don't think I've seen him in a ton of movies, but I believe you. I've he's seen iconic. Him, I've seen him in Spider Man. <laughs> I've seen him in Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've seen some of his other things. Oh, I've seen the Grand Budapest Hotel. Exactly. You've yeah. seen him in Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the time period. I forget. He, like, released a movie, like, last year or something. And then everyone on TikTok were, like, thirsting after young Willem Dafoe. What? Yeah. I was like, this is such a weird time to live in. <laughs> They're like, People he was so TikTok fine. People on TikTok love to be like, look at this weird man <laughs> we found. Yeah. So, this movie is so gay. And that's why we love it. First of all, vampires are always gay in every single piece of media. Is this the first vampire thing we've done on this podcast? I think. Wait, let me think of all the things we've done. Is it? I think it is. Which is so upsetting because every single vampire movie is gay. The vampires, they're gay. Okay? Mm -hmm. If they're not literally gay, they are bi. Yeah. If they are not shown being bi, it is implied. Okay? I do not take criticism. This is a fact, okay? And it's based in historical ideas of portraying vampires as a metaphor for AIDS during the 80s, okay? Mm -hmm. Although I will argue that while some horror historians claim that that's the start of gay vampires, actually, this goes back to Lord Byron and his dumbass because his ex-boyfriend Polidori got so mad at Byron when they broke up that Polidori wrote a short story about Byron being a vampire because he is evil (laughs) and sucks the life out of the room. Wow. And that was published pre-Dracula, like 1800s. Yeah. So vampires have been gay for a very long time. Wow. Go vampires. Yeah. Sometimes... Your evil ex just needs to be a vampire for a sec. And you've got to write a smear campaign. Energy vampires! (laughs) Like on what we do in the shadows. Yeah. But yeah, also worth noting, this short story came out of the same infamous trip as Frankenstein. Um, While Mary Shelley was writing Frankenstein and they had that, you know... The famous, like, like, story contest. Yeah. Yeah. This is what Polidori was up to on that trip. (laughs) He really said, Byron is so mean to me. You have to, you have to listen to me talk about my ex, and it is a gay vampire. But yeah, so vampirism sometimes can be a metaphor for AIDS, um, which can lead to a queer portrayal. However, not really the case here, I don't think. Um, Instead, it is very overtly a metaphor for drug addiction, which we see through the symptoms that Sarah has as she begins to transform into a vampire. Do you know when this movie came out, has the the AIDS epidemic already been, like, has it started at this point? Okay. Yeah. I think it started roughly 1980, and the movie came out in 83. Okay, I see. Because I was going to say, I feel like it's very gay forward for a film. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. I am very curious about how this movie got away with being so gay. Yeah, but I feel like the eighties were like decently gay. Like yeah. it's not like I the forties really... when they were like you can't show the gay. No, but it is very like this is clearly not like the world's most mainstream movie. Yeah, a hundred percent. Even though like I would consider some of the people in this movie to be mainstream, but I also do think I guess. They're really famous. They are really famous. But I guess, but I guess they wouldn't be mainstream. But I feel like I would see like straight people now being like, "Yeah, I listen to David Bowie." My straight boss, who is like very straight, was talking about David Bowie the other day. And I was like, "Have you ever seen The Hunger?" And he was like, "No." And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "You thought you, a straight man, had a monopoly on David Bowie knowledge?" No, but you're wrong. <laughs> I have the monopoly on David <laughs> Bowie knowledge. But yeah, um, so we see that pretty much all three of the main characters are very obviously bi, probably, except I definitely think Sarah's a lesbian, but that's just me. She could be bi, okay. Um, and 
we see this through John when he is really hungry, okay, and he's like aging, and he goes to the bathroom, and he's like a shirtless man. <laughs> and then later in the elevator, he is interested in a nurse in the exact same way. So we see that he's equally interested in men and women. Miriam, in much the same way, um, is stated to have had female lovers before John, um, specifically one named Lalia, who was the one right before John. So she's clearly bi, um, not to mention her relationship with Sarah, yeah, which is pretty much the focal point of the movie. Yeah. In fact, this movie is so explicitly queer that these two women do have a sex scene. However, I also want to talk about the implications of a man writing and filming this because it is definitely feeling like that thing of when straight men are like, lesbians are hot. Yeah, 100%. And it's also worth noting that the novel that this movie is based off of is also written by a white man. Exactly. So, like, do they really know how lesbian sex works? No. Probably not. From watching this scene, they either do not know or ignored it. Yeah. Because what was that? That was them tastefully lying on a bed with 500 gauzy curtains. Yeah. <laughs> not a single element of sex to be seen. No. no, not at all. They said curtains. They said, I think all lesbians have gauzy curtains in their room. And then they make out and have wind blowing through the curtains. And that's it. Mm-hmm. That is sex. That is sex. We've <laughs> solved it, guys. We know how lesbians have sex now. <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway so i love this movie so much i love that there's a very explicit queer couple in it i do think it is worth analyzing how the fact that it is pretty much entirely men who created this relationship impacts the way it is portrayed because i definitely feel like it is for a male gaze the number of times it randomly shows their boobs is noticeable yeah no, 100%. Like, even even to the point where she was, like, the when she just takes off her shirt at the beginning and she's not wearing a bra. Yeah. Like, I mean, it adds to the gayness, but it's definitely written for the male gaze. Yeah. Oh, know? 100%. Yeah. Um, Alternatively, when Susan Sarandon takes off her shirt because she spills one drop of cherry on it, <laughs> that is camp. It is very camp. Now, it's is so it? Camp. A good portrayal of queer women, maybe not, but it is hilarious and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I need to try that. I need to be like, oh no, I spilled something on my shirt. A single drop. <laughs> Me at the function spills it, all the red wine on my shirt. Oh no! Oh, no. It takes it off. Oh no! Oh, the worst! <laughs> Whatever could I possibly do? Maybe you could use your body to wipe it off for me. (laughs) (laughs) So real. I just... It's so... You know how we said this movie is entirely created for the aesthetic? That does extend to the queer women in it. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, like, all the characters, but because the queer women are the two protagonists. Yeah. Yeah. How is how is Miriam Egyptian? We need to know, okay? Why did you cast this white woman and say, yeah, I guess she's from Egypt? Yeah. That makes they sense. They really said... I mean, it's just cultural. It just feels a little icky. Oh, for sure. It's just a little icky. Yeah. Um, like, it's definitely something you would expect out of this time period. But, like, you know, looking at this... From the time we are in right now, the lens we have right now, it's important to note that she is a white woman. She's French. She's French. Um, <laughs> yes, this actress is French. Like, she's not Egyptian. Um, and it's weird. It's really weird. It's just weird. It's really weird. And it's like, like, I understand, you know, the Ankh being a symbol of everlasting life, but they could have easily written her as a European woman. Or cast a black actress. Yeah, quite simply. Is it that hard? No. Come on, you guys. It's not that hard. Pull it together. They could have done a lot, but they chose to cast a white woman and make her Egyptian. Yep. And, like, I don't know. 
it's just like they really could have written it around her being European or like as you said cast a black actress because it's not even like her being Egyptian is a huge plot point no it is literally one flashback yeah and it is one flashback and like you can literally find Ankh the Ankh you can learn about the Ankh symbol from any different point or like any place Mm -hmm. yeah so like there were ways around it could have done better could have done better for sure so apparently Susan Sarandon has said that she was having an affair with David Bowie while they were filming this. That's wild. That is so wild. That's so wild. I need to know the source for this because I did just randomly find it online. Yeah. I need to know if this is true or not because that is such like deep lore. It is. It's giving the same energy as when I found out that Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins were dating. Oh. Same energy. I'm yeah. Like, the gay icons. They the gay were icons. they were dating? For me, I don't know why it reminded I guess this is more straight icons, but um when my brain is forgetting their actual names. Just so say I'm, the actors. <laughs> Just say the characters. I mean Solo and Princess Leia. <laughs> Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why my brain I was just like, I know them, but I can only remember Star Wars right now. But it's giving when I found out they, because I think like they're, these are just big names to yeah. me. So then it's like, what, what? It's like when Pete Davidson finds a new celebrity crossover, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're like, really? <laughs> but I feel like when Pete Davidson, it's like always the woman, and I'm like him. <laughs> like what? Like yeah. it's not even like I particularly care for any of his past relationships that much no but i'm like pete davidson (laughs) he is the epitome of the meme that's like i pulled a girl by being a silly little guy yeah just a silly little guy (laughs) oh silly goofy funny (laughs) is he dating anyone right now what's the lore who's he dating oh i think I think it's a comedian. Oh, that makes sense. Then. But she's That's not normal. like a big name. Yeah. Like, I mean, this I, feels normal. When yeah. he was dating Kim, Kim Kardashian, Kardashian, not normal. And they dated for a while. A long time. Like, I remember when the SNL skit came out where they kissed. Like, it was like literally a peck. And I was like, this is weird. I never thought this would happen. And then, like, two weeks later, it's like they're dating. I was like, That should not have happened. There was some sort of glitch in the Matrix that caused that. Like, that was not supposed to happen. I'm sorry. Not at all. Anyway, same energy with Susan Sarandon apparently was having an affair with David Bowie while they were filming this. Also, they have, like, no seats together, so, like... Yeah, so, like, when did... They they have a couple seats together. Like, Like, it's not like they wouldn't marry, but, like... We cannot analyze their on-screen chemistry because yeah. they literally are, like, mad at each other for the one scene that they have. Yeah. Meanwhile, apparently Catherine Deneuve started a long-term relationship with one of the cameramen, so, like, Good go off. Her. Yeah. Good for her. Continue to know nothing about her, but think she seems cool. Mm-hmm. So, this movie definitely does the thing similar to Midnight Mass on Netflix, if you've seen that, where they're all very clearly vampires, but... The movie is too pretentious to actually say they're vampires. They have to be like, we we drink blood. We're immortal. Ooh, what could we be? Not a common mythological creature you've heard no. of before. Vampires? I don't know the name. That's not me. Sorry. But yeah, they they're they're like very clearly following very traditional vampire lore. Yeah, but. They're they're pretending like they're too fancy for that. Also, speaking of vampire lore, why does Miriam stay young forever, but the people she turns don't? Yeah. Honestly, like, I want to know more about Miriam's backstory. I do, too. The one flashback where yeah. she was allegedly randomly Egyptian was not doing it for no, me. No, it didn't give us any I information. To know, like, what was up with Lalia? I bet she was an icon. Yeah. But we never got to see that. No, we just heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, was she born a vampire or was she turned like mm. everyone else? See, that's... My theory is that she was maybe born a vampire, yeah. and that's why she is, what like, a first? true vampire. The vampire or the egg? 
Yeah, but like I think that makes sense as to why she would be like truly immortal. Yeah, the people she turns are just like whatever. Also, I have a theory that the reason why they start to age is because she's found a new person. That makes sense. Because John starts to age after he meets Sarah. Yeah. So I think that... It's when she realizes she she's, she's like fallen in love it. again. Yeah. Even though, like, it's not really love yet because she just met Sarah. Yeah, but it's more dramatic that way. Yeah. If you're like, oh, they're in love. Mm-hmm. They met two minutes ago. Yeah. But that's my personal theory about, like, why they start to age is maybe once she's, like, sort of fallen out of love with them. Yeah. Like, because it's apparently, like, her life force sustaining them. Mm-hmm. So then maybe she's, like, not giving And she's not putting as much energy into them. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. I'm also curious. I know we get to see some of them, like, at the end, but I wonder... If they all decompose to kind of the same level of old age, or is it varying levels of old age? I mean, they all just look like skeletons. Yeah, like <laughs> that's true. Like, how much more decomposed can you get? So, the movie, we kind of already hit on this during the plot description, but... The movie takes place in New York City, but they didn't have the budget to film there, so it's all filmed in London, and maybe that helps explain why the Blaylocks have this giant mansion, which could not possibly (laughs) exist in downtown Manhattan, but it could exist in downtown London, because there are a lot of rich nobility with fancy Fancy places places in London, that's definitely a thing that exists. Oh, 100%. I do think that would make a lot of sense. Maybe they should have just given up and be li- been like, it's in London. because That's what I was thinking. Because, like, how much is it actually going to change to the film? Because they're not really using New York. Like, I feel like London fits the aesthetic of the film more than New York. Yeah. Except maybe the goth nightclub. I feel like there's goth nightclubs in, like, London, though. There probably are. But I just yeah. associate it with being, like, classy. Yeah. That's and true. New York City feels like a club city. Yeah. No, I agree. I see that. Maybe it could be like, oh, they flew to New York for this one night. <laughs> uh, <laughs> They're trying out a delicacy. Truly you know? lesbian culture. <laughs> Also, the reason why the ending makes not a lick of sense is because they wanted to keep it open for a theoretical sequel because the book it's based on had sequels. So the studio was like, hey, we know you wrote this ending, but what if you tack on a fun little scene where Mm -hmm. they're still alive and Sarah's just like kissing some random girl and she's actually fine and not dead. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I kind of agree with Susan Sarandon's um, thing on it because I think I saw a quote from her somewhere where she was like, oh, I would have rather it just like ended where it ended or like the original ending because the whole thing, like especially vampires being a symbol for addiction and how uh, Sarah would rather take her own life than be an addict. And now all of a sudden she's just fine being an addict. And yeah. It's like, mm. But, and I also kind of just like depressing endings. So um, that's just <laughs> and that's me. why we love horror yeah. movies. So I don't know. It does feel out of place because I just think, I mean, but then again, I do think there's like not plot holes, but there are a lot of things that just aren't explained in the movie. Mm-hmm. So it fits in the movie somehow. Oh, no, literally. Like the first time I watched it, I was like, that ending didn't make sense, but... Neither did the prior hour and a half of the movie, so I guess I'm okay with it, actually. Right? Like, I'm not (laughs) mad. Also, if we ignore the fact that it's a metaphor for drug addiction, I do think it's very iconic of Sarah to be like, I love being a vampire now because me. Yeah. And, you know, let me find a gay lover. Literally. Sarah has the audacity to be living my dream and to be unhappy with it. <laughs> with why the gauzy am, currents and everything. Why am I not a gay vampire? I'm gay. Yeah. Well, you you check mark one of the boxes. You just need to find you need to check mark the other. Where are the vampires? 
I don't know, in coffins, <laughs> decomposing. Yeah. In, the, in an attic in surrounded attic. by pigeons. Right. I got I got to look for the pigeons. Like I need yeah. to see if there's a building with like pigeons circling around it. Do you think it'd be possible for one of Miriam's lovers to turn someone? I don't know. Probably, I right? I want to know the vampire lore. Yeah, I want to know like, the Like, I want to know how sure. it works. Mm-hmm. Is it your dream to be a gay vampire? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, live on forever. But I would just have a string of all my lovers. They'd be so gay. <laughs> They'd be so gay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I, I kind of, I don't know if I like the idea of just storing them in coffins. No. Like, I would I try to bad. avoid that for sure. Because yeah. <laughs> Miriam's like going through it when yeah. John dies. But, I don't know. And I feel like other, they... other vampire lore may be a little bit more beneficial. Yeah. Because then you could avoid the, the lovers dying. The lovers, yeah. You could go for full interview with the vampire. Mm-hmm. The lover does not die. He becomes the main character of the book, actually. Yeah. He is a bland and basic person, but that's okay. That's okay. Okay. You know? Or, like, I was thinking about American Horror Story Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and the vampires in that live on forever. That's and true. And, like, Lady Gaga's character does get mad if one of her vampire people she turn turns another one. Yeah. You but gotta, like, like keep they, it, you gotta keep it in control. Yeah. See, like, in an interview with the vampire, when they turn the little girl, the vampires are mad, because they're like, that's, like, not ethically okay, because yeah. now she's stuck as a child forever. Yeah. Weird. See, other lore, different rules. This is very specific vampire yeah. lore, for sure. Wait, is the interview with the vampire the one with Angelina Jolie's ex-husband? Brad Pitt? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yes, but that's the worst possible version. Okay, because there's a book that is excellent. Yeah. And there's a TV show that's just coming out right now. Oh, okay. It's really fun, and they, like, amped up the gayness to, like, Mm -hmm. 500, because the original book was gay, but it wasn't, like, pushing it. It was very, like, we kissed one time. Wow. (laughs) Um, And... The movie, meanwhile, is a piece of trash that I hate because Tom Cruise cannot play Lestat. I don't ever want to hear it, okay? He's terrible in that movie. It's so bad. I have a lot of feelings. Also, it's so straight. Like, like, it's, like, gay-coded because these books are, like, infamously gay. Like, when they came out, people were, like, losing their minds over, like, oh, they're, like, really, like, explicitly Mm -hmm. gay vampires. And the movie, they, like, dramatically stare at each other and they're, like, I had feelings for you once, and then they, like, leave, you know? Like, it's very... That's not fun. It's not fun. And it came out in, like, the early 2000s, and that yeah. helps, like, explain the vibe, like, too. The only thing I know about it is that Kristen... Kirsten Dunst... Is the little girl. Is the little girl, um, and Claudia, she kisses Brad, Brad Pitt. Pitt. Yeah. Which I thought was a little weird. Yeah. But that's, like, kind of always an element of the plot. Like, yeah. that, that part is very weird. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize it was based off of a book. Oh, the books are I iconic. just knew about them. They're by Anne Rice, who's, like, a queen, okay? We love her. Yeah. Um, She just died recently, actually, but she was, oh. like, very, like, my characters are gay. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why she got really mad when they cast Tom Cruise. Yeah. Because they're like, he, he is not a gay icon. No, he is, like, the straightest man ever. Yeah. You know? And then he played Les Tat, who's sort of this, like, flamboyantly gay man as, like, just some guy. He's just some dude. Ew. I know! I hate that. Yeah, I hate it, too. Bruh. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, straightest man on the world, in the world, in the world, on this earth. Nasty, nasty little adaptation. But anyway, that's an example of bad adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie, it's gay, and that makes me think it's a good adaptation of the book, despite me not having read the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love adaptations where there are queer women, mm-hmm. and they are still queer when the movie is made. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's still gay at the end. She's still gay at the end. Mm-hmm. This movie does survive a lot of the, like, negative gay tropes. Like, the the characters are alive at the end. Mm-hmm. Vaguely, vaguely. In a confusing way. But yeah, they are alive. They're, alive. They're, they're not terrible people. No. I mean, certainly Sarah's a good person. Yeah. Miriam is Wishy-washy okay. Morally gray. Yeah. But 
she's fine. But, like, they're not evil. No, definitely no. not. Like, I don't think any of the characters other than Tom. Tom. Is ugh, evil. But Tom's great. Yeah. We end every episode by ranking movies we watch on a scale of 1 to 10 on both how queer they are and how much we like them overall. So on a scale of from 1 to 10 on how queer it is, I would give this um, probably like an 8 out of 10, I think. I was also thinking yeah, an 8. Yeah, because we've talked about some of the flaws it has, right? It definitely feels like it is written for the male gaze. Yeah. That's not great. Um, it's not necessarily the most like diverse depiction of queer people. Um, it is very like gay women, which yeah. is you know kind of like a a basic depiction of gay people. There's not any They're depiction like, I of think like this is how gay sex yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. No, I was also gonna give it an eight for the exact same reason uh, because it's definitely for the male gaze. Yeah, but it's still fun. But and it is still camp, and it's still queer. So. Yes. It is definitely an explicit depiction of queer people from the 80s. Which, which is, is really cool. Pretty great. Love that. Yeah. Um, so on a scale of 1 to 10 on how much I liked it overall, I'm going to give it, I think, a 7 out of 10. I was also giving it a 7. No way. This is why we're Same besties. Um, <laughs> because it's an excellent movie. This is the third time I've watched it. Um, but I do think it is very slow it lacks plot the plot thing is a little i feel like the plot thing definitely makes it a seven for me because i enjoyed it i just think i would have liked to know more about stuff Mm, (laughs) yeah just like okay so they're having sex now cool Um, thanks plot you really almost existed for a second there (laughs) yeah um so yeah i think it's a good movie, but we we've stated our grievances. It's mm-hmm. not a ten out of ten for me. Yeah. So every episode we connect what we watched this time to what we're going to watch next time through a string of things that are vaguely related. So vaguely we can keep related. our podcast continuous. Yeah. In a string of things. Uh our connection to next episode is going to be it's a little bit pretentious. Just a little. Just a little. But it's fun. It's fun. We like it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Be sure to join us in hopefully two weeks this time. We we will try our best not to lie on that one. Um, <laughs> for our next episode of Queer by Candlelight. Queer by Candlelight is a podcast hosted, created, and edited. Thank you.